the thing that we're really trying to do in this report is to basically let folks know that the way that you think the transportation infrastructure financing works, the way that you might have been taught for many years that it works, actually isn't the case. And that if we begin to look at it with clear eyes as to what is actually happening now, it doesn't just get us to the point where we can look at you know, what's the solution to plug the transportation funding gap, but it actually gets us to the point where we can rethink um, our investments in infrastructure. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. America is in a transportation policy crisis. The Federal Highway Trust Fund regularly flirts with insolvency. Our transportation infrastructure is aging. Demand for other options is on the rise with limited available funding to serve their growing needs. That's an excerpt from a new report by the Frontier Group and the U.S. Public Interest Research Group Education Fund. The report's called Who Pays for Roads? And I have Tony Dutzik, one of the authors of this report. He's a senior policy analyst with the Frontier Group. Tony, you've been on the podcast before. Welcome back. Thanks, Chuck. Glad to be here. I was thrown off completely by the title, Who Pays for Roads? Because I pay gas taxes. Obviously, I pay for the roads. But you seem to insinuate that that's not exactly the case. Well, you help pay for the roads as a driver. Um, you know, and certainly the gas taxes and other fees that we pay, you know, by virtue of being motorists helps to defray the cost of, of road construction. But, you know, we have this persistent myth in the country that folks who drive pay the full cost of the roads through the gas taxes and tolls and other fees that they pay as a result of vehicle ownership. And that's never really been the case. And it gets to be the case less and less with every passing year. You know, I'm sure your listeners know as much as other folks who have been paying attention to this, that, you know, we haven't raised the federal gas tax since 1993. And, you know, if you think about what things cost in 1993 and what they cost now, you get a lot less for the money than we did back then. So the share of the cost of road maintenance and construction that had been paid for by drivers has been declining over time, and we've been filling more and more of the budget with uh, with money from general taxpayers, from folks who may drive a lot, they may drive a little, or they may drive not at all. You know, and so we now find ourselves in a situation where more than half of the money that is spent on uh, or where less than half of the money that is spent on road construction and maintenance nationwide from federal, state, and local sources comes from folks who drive, and nearly half of the money that pays for all of those expenses comes from general taxpayers. It comes from property taxes. It comes from local option sales taxes. It comes from federal income taxes and other forms of revenue that don't come from drivers. This myth that drivers pay their own way. Essentially, the gas tax and you know other fees that drivers pay cover the roads. It's a myth that runs really deep in American culture. It also goes way back and has some roots from almost a century ago. In the report, you guys talk a little bit about the 1920s and the way streets were used back then and how the tax system kind of correlated with that and how the tax system really hasn't changed, even though the use of our streets has. Can you take us back 100 years ago and talk a little bit about our local streets and, and how they function maybe differently back then? Sure. Well, if you go back to 100 years or before, I mean, we, we, we had before there was a federal highway program and before most states spent a lot of money on highways, we did we did have roads. We had streets in our towns. And those roads and streets were paid for either out of general taxation, so out of property taxes that people in those cities or towns paid, or they were paid for by assessments on the neighboring property owners. So sometimes that meant a monetary contribution. Sometimes that meant if you were in a rural area that you know you, you went out and you did a few hours of road work to contribute to <laughs> yeah. the cost of maintaining the road. So, <laughs> you, you actually um, went out and fixed the road, yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. You'd go out and go out with a shovel and, and help do your part for the community. So, you know, historically, we have this very, this very deep history of 
roads that are paid for, you know, as a communal enterprise. So they're paid for by property taxes or, or other general taxation. And if you go back to the way that we used roads and streets in the early part of the 20th century, um, you know, it was pretty much correlated with the fact that everybody had access to the streets, you know, whether you had a motor vehicle or not. And the rights that we had to those roadways were more or less equal. So if you were, if you were a pedestrian, if you were a bicyclist, if you, you know, had a, had a cart that you, you know, you sold your wares from as you walked down the street, if you rode a horse, had a horse and buggy, or if you had an automobile in the early days, you know, your access to and your rights to be in those roads and streets were considered roughly equal. And what happened in the 1920s was, you know, in part as a result of, you know, an effort to improve public safety, uh, which meant, you know, getting pedestrians and bicyclists and others out of car drivers' way. Right. Uh, we increasingly changed the way that we used our streets in such a way that that automobile traffic was prioritized over all of these other uses. When we changed that, the thing that we didn't necessarily change was the funding system for how we paid for those local roads and streets. So there are cities and towns in many places that do benefit from gas taxes that are paid at the state level. They do get some amount of return back from that investment from state aid or, uh, or perhaps for federal projects. But by and large, the bulk of the responsibility for maintaining our local roads and streets still is in the hands of local taxpayers paying property taxes, not gas taxes. And, you know, when you think about it, the money that we that drivers pay for driving around our cities and towns that money doesn't necessarily always come back to, to the local jurisdictions. So, you know, in essence, those people, people who are using those roads and streets are, are in essence paying twice for that. You had that one graph that just blew my mind, the one of San Francisco, and it was a pie chart, essentially, that showed the percentage of different parts of the system that were paved, essentially, it blew my mind. You, you think of the highways as being, you know, the state and federal highways as being the big player, but it was all local streets and parking lots with a very tiny percentage being the actual state and federal systems. We kind of discount the local share of this, don't we? Yeah, I think we do. And we also, uh, that research, by the way, it was a pie chart that, that we developed from research that was done from the, by the Transportation Choices for Sustainable Communities Research and Policy Institute in San Francisco. So, you know, San Francisco is not representative of the United States in many, many, many different ways. But what is, what is interesting is you think of San Francisco as being a city that is, uh, you know, generally walkable. It's one where there are transit options. And yet the vast majority of the pavement space, you know, even within the city of San Francisco is dedicated either to moving or to storing cars. And so you think about, you know, where, where are our resources going? Uh, you know, where are we putting our money in terms of the, the infrastructure that we're building and supporting? And, you know, we tend not to, you know, many of us, you know, just take for granted that that's what urban streets are for. They're for moving cars. They're for storing cars when we're not using them. You know, and yet we tend not to think about them in, you know, this when we're talking about roads and highways more more broadly, you know, as infrastructure. We tend not to think about them as, as being top of mind. Yeah, I mean, I looked at that and thought in my own little town here. You know, we have nowhere near the wealth and nowhere near the, the productivity of a place like San Francisco. Yet we have, just thinking about it in my mind, uh, how many miles and miles of, of local streets that are, are never going to be paid for by federal state gas tax, never going to be paid for by user fee, simply are paid for out of our local budget. And that was one of the, the insights in this report that just kind of struck me how much we debate the gas tax, but completely overlook the fact that we fund the vast majority of our system locally. Right. And, you know, I think if you look at, and, you know, certainly this is, this is work that you, you all have done great work in, in sort of bringing some of these challenges at the local level to light. But, you know, you think about the, the typical trajectory of sprawl development where you have developers who are, you know, adding subdivisions out in out in green fields and in building the roads to link folks from you know from housing to the transportation network, and then you know as a as a wonderful gift to the local community, <laughs> they right. keep them over to the to the cities and towns, you know, who then become responsible for their upkeep and maintenance. And you know, we continue to add vast amounts of new transportation, new asphalt, you know, around the country through those kinds of arrangements. And the upfront money doesn't even, is only part of the picture that the, the costs and the burdens on 
local governments in terms of the the ongoing maintenance and upkeep of those roads, you know, is a huge burden. Right. The state governments step in really in the 20s and 30s with state gas taxes. And then by the 50s, you have the federal gas tax. The report talks about how through the mid-1970s, 70% of the costs for our our federal system were paid for by user fees, basically taxes and direct fees, and and 10% were by bonds. But in the 1980s, things changed. Can you kind of walk us through that, what I would call the, the kind of first generation of highway building and then the second and subsequent generations and how things have changed in terms of how we pay for them? Well, the 70% figure is actually the, the percentage of, of all road and highway oh, okay. um, sure. investment that's paid for by user fees at federal, state, and, and local level. But, but at the federal level, you know, I think the situation is in some ways similar to where we are today and in some ways quite different in that the federal government made a commitment to the interstate highway system in the mid-1950s. And, you know, the largest public works projects, you know, to that time in human history, <laughs> you know, 40,000 miles of highways, you know, linking the entire country, it's you know, hundreds enormous. of billions of dollars worth yeah. of investment. And that took a long time to build. And, and as it did, costs increased. And gradually over time, you know, we, we faced a similar situation where gas taxes weren't necessarily increasing sufficiently to cover the cost of all of these roads that we were continuing to build, both at the federal level and, and also at the state level. You know, and so in the early 80s, uh, you know, you see President Reagan and the Congress at that time agreeing to increase the federal gas tax. You see states doing the same, you know, and again, a further increase in the in the early 1990s uh, in an effort to kind of narrow that gap. And, and, you know, if you look at the overall figures for the share of costs of highways that can't come from highway users, from drivers, they, they did succeed actually in narrowing the gap to some degree in the 1980s. So instead of it being 70% coming from, coming from drivers, it was in the 60s. But then, you know, as we talked about, the value of the gas tax has been declining over time. A lot of the, the way that those highways were paid for in part was even if the gas tax itself wasn't increasing, people were driving more and more miles every single year. That hasn't been happening in the last decade. And cars are becoming more fuel efficient. So all of those things happening at the same time over the course of the last decade has really blown a hole in the revenue model for the nation's program of of both maintaining and then also expanding its highway network. And we've been making that up how? Uh, We've been making it up uh, increasingly with money from general taxpayers. So, you know, up until the late 2000s, um, you know, the Federal Highway Trust Fund was exclusively funded by gas taxes and other other highway user fees, so truck user fees, taxes on tires and the like. But then it was in the late 2000s that Congress first began putting general fund revenue, so revenue that comes from taxes on all of us, uh, into the Highway Trust Fund as a way to keep it propped up. Uh, And they've done that repeatedly over the last seven or eight years uh, to the point where, you know, now general fund transfers have just become become a normal thing. You know, what the Highway Trust Fund continues to flirt with insolvency on, you know, almost uh, a monthly or bi-monthly basis. We're now in the middle of a two-month extension, and Congress has no idea where the money is going to come from for, for transportation after that time is up. So the way that we've done it at the federal level has been through general taxes. And then at the state and local level, you've seen an increasing tendency toward um, you know, local option tax initiatives. So, you know, these transportation packages that tend to come before voters either in a, a particular county or a series of counties or at the state level where, you know, basically the, the state is asking voters to approve an increase in general taxes to then support transportation investments, some of which are public transit and some of which are highways. In many ways now, transportation competes from a budget standpoint with things like public schools and public safety and health care spending, that's kind of how it's evolved now. Is that correct? Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And, you know, our psychology is still based in the old model of assuming that drivers, that drivers pay for roads, that, that roads and highways are somehow, you know, this kind of other, there's this other expense that's off to the side of our public budgets that we we have a thing called transportation revenue 
that comes from transportation. And then we have this thing called transportation spending that doesn't have to compete with anything else. So there's a psychology that I think is built into how we how we think about and plan transportation infrastructure that that none of this budgetary stuff really matters. That we have a thing called transportation needs that don't compete with anything else. And that when we have not enough revenue to meet those needs determined by the federal government or the engineering world or, or whomever, that we create a hole that we have to fill with revenue from some source. And I think the point that you're raising is that, you know, really, we're now in a situation where increasingly transportation is competing with other public needs. And we need to, to change our conversation and to change our psychology in order to understand that that's the case. Part of that psychology maybe affects the way we look at taking on debt. You guys had a very interesting sidebar in the report about bond revenue and you know whether it really should count as user revenue. Can, can you just maybe explain a little bit what bond revenue is and how our appetite for it and use of it has kind of changed over time? Well, in, in general, transportation bonds have, have been – they can come in one of two forms. They can either come in the form of general obligation bonds where the entire faith and credit of the state or the local government is is resting on the ability to repay those bonds over time through revenues that they have obtained from tolls or gas taxes or other sources. And if those fail, then the general taxpayers are on the hook. Or they can be based on um, anticipated revenues that are anticipated to come in the future, either from state gas tax revenues or from federal from federal financing. And historically, you know, if you look back at the projects and the transportation infrastructure that was funded through through bonds, the, historically, there's a pretty good track record of uh, of user revenues being, you know, actually being sufficient to pay back those bonds. I'm, I'm just I'm finishing reading uh, the book The Power Broker uh, about Robert Moses in New York. And, yeah, yeah which I should have read years ago and I'm finally finishing now, but you know, the transportation infrastructure that, that they built there was intended to be paid off with bonds, but they were, they were swimming in money that, that came in from user revenues when they first built those, those bridges and tunnels. We're now in a situation where there is greater and greater uncertainty about all of those future funding sources that might come in to pay for a bond that you take out today. You think about gas tax revenues, you know, which continually in real terms, have been going down, is there a great deal of confidence that that's going to be sufficient to pay off a bond? You look at um, federal funding, so states that have taken out bonds that are based on anticipated future federal revenues from the Highway Trust Fund. Is the Highway Trust Fund even going to be there in, in 15 or 20 years in the same way that it is today? You look at even at toll revenues, some of the public-private partnerships that have been done in the last uh, in the last decade or two, some of which have not seen the level of traffic that's necessary to pay back the bonds, and so those those projects have gotten into financial trouble. You know, I think the bond rating agencies are increasingly seeing that that's problematic. That you know, the lack of a of a good funding source to pay back those investments then you know raises all sorts of questions about about whether bonding is appropriate in those situations and then ultimately about whether you know what the rates are if the risk of a bond is higher if you know the bond uh, bond issuers are less confident that the revenue is going to come in to pay for it they're going to charge more in interest and it's going to be more costly for the public to pursue those kinds of projects going down the line it seems a lot like the bond agencies look back I had a meeting with a bunch of people from ratings agencies earlier this year, and and mm-hmm. one of the things they said to me was, "Well, you know, these things have never defaulted. You know, we can look back for decades and see that there's no history of of default. Why are you here telling us that these things are risky and we should be rating them differently?" And I, I kind of pointed to the notion that I think your report illuminates very clearly that things are things are changing. We we don't necessarily have the same system we had. Like you said, we were swimming in money back when we first started building this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there have been a couple of examples of of private toll roads that you know that have been built in places like Texas and California that have, and, and even in Virginia, you know, that have very clearly failed 
to meet their projections. And they've some of those roads have only escaped technical default because they've been bought out by the public sector, or you know they've they've otherwise had some of their initial investment written off. Um, you know, or in the case of some toll roads that we've looked at in California, the length of the term during which the public-private partnership can charge tolls is extended further out into the future. So you know, okay, we, we're not going to be able to make enough tolls in 30 years to pay off the cost of the road. We'll let you charge tolls for 40 years or 50 years going out into the future. Right. So there are definitely some some documented instances in the public-private toll road world of where some of these projects have gotten into really significant financial trouble. And then, you know, you look at the, you look at the transportation balance sheets of some of these states, you know, you look at, um, I, I don't have the precise figures from the state of Washington, but, you know, you're in a situation now where in some states, a, a large and growing share of the money that is coming in from gas taxes and other user fees is being dedicated to paying off past bonds. Right. So in some places you're getting to the point where, you know, and we can debate, you know, whether whether it's a good thing or not <laughs> that states are feeling constrained in their ability to to build new infrastructure, but you are getting to the point in some states where you know, certainly the ability to build new infrastructure or even to maintain what we have is being constrained by debt that we've incurred already, you know, based on the assumption that the money was always going to be there. Let me let me ask you about that debt. And at the local level, I I know exactly what happens. It's a little fuzzier to me at the state level, because I I read earlier this year that by July, but this coming fiscal year, New Jersey's DOT, every penny of gas tax coming in will go to pay debt. In Texas, they crossed over the 50% threshold a couple of years ago and are on their way to, I want to say it's like 60% or around that threshold this year. Mm-hmm. At the local level, what I see going on a lot, a lot, is where a city will say, all right, we, we've got this project or we've got these series of, of streets we have to go out and fix or maintain or whatever, and we only have a limited amount of cash. We don't have enough money to do it. But what we can do is we can turn that cash flow we have into essentially a payment stream. So instead of spending, you know, a million dollars a year fixing streets, we'll spend half a million dollars a year fixing streets and half a million dollars a year paying off debt so that we can go do one big project. Mm-hmm. These cities, in a sense, mistake their insolvency problem for a cash flow problem. They're like, okay, mm-hmm. we, we got this big project. We're short of cash. Let's go out and do it. I see cities getting huge problems doing that because they wind up, you know, not really dealing with the fact that they're insolvent and they go out and they, you know, don't raise taxes, but they borrow the money, do all the flashy projects and then don't have the money to maintain any of it. Is this what happens at the state level as well? Is is it that simple where we're just essentially trying to extend how far our dollar can go today by using it as debt? Or is this just a leftover of the days when we were so flush with cash that, you know, taking on a bond as a way to finance a project was a logical thing and we just have not redressed that? Well, I think the place where you see that sort of dynamic happening increasingly at the state level, I think, is with the public-private partnerships. So, you know, you have this, you have this idea that, you know, instead of, instead of either building a project, either raising taxes to pay for the project or, or taking out a public bond that somehow we can, we can do a better job of that by bringing in, you know, private investment, you know, which ultimately is going to be going to be paid for by somebody. I mean, it's going to be paid either by the users of the infrastructure, although, you know, increasingly, you know, private entities are not interested in, taking on the risk that they're going to build a road and nobody's going to show up. Right. Um, increasingly, you know, what you find is, you know, states making long-term cash flow commitments essentially to, to paying off, you know, the availability of these roads and, and highways and bridges annually over time in a way that actually, you know, reduces public accountability and it increases the costs because the cost of the cost of borrowing and financing and, um, you know, generating a return on investment for, for some of the private entities is, is higher than if the public were to do it itself. The propensity toward, wanting to find a way, you know, wanting to find the easy way out 
of the mess, uh, you know, I think is is similar at the state level than it is at the, as it is at the local level, and you know the the mechanisms. I think the traditional mechanisms of doing that through, you know, through borrowing based on revenue that you anticipate to to be there, or through general obligation responsibilities, I think is is one thing. But there's this whole other new avenue of having access to to money that is perceived to be free that you know that state governments are are increasingly pursuing that has a lot of of challenges, I think, for the public interest. I have a hard time with the public-private partnership concept. I do for a couple of reasons. I mean, I'm I'm a market guy. I I love mm-hmm. markets, and I would love I would love privatized roadways in many ways. I don't necessarily have a problem with that. It seems mm-hmm. to me, though, when I, I've seen the public-private partnership model in action, it is essentially places where either w- one of two things is going on. E- either the the government, largely the state governments, don't want to go through the process of allocating the money so they can get the money from from private individuals to essentially skip that that ask that they have to do or that sales job that they have to do. The other side of it is to me where the project maybe makes some sense. In other words, there can be a, a toll or some type of revenue stream, but the government wants the revenue now. I mean, this is what mm-hmm. I think the Indiana model was where, yep. okay, we'll get this big lump sum payment of cash today. And essentially you're cashing in an annuity. Now that, that one, the road failed. So it actually <laughs> worked out for the state's advantage. Right. But am I missing something here? I mean, is, is there a way that these public private partnerships, when the government enters into them, actually work out to the benefit of the taxpayer? I, I don't understand it. There's a, a theory by which, by which they would work and a very limited set of circumstances, I think, in which they make sense. And the, the circumstances in which they make sense are when the private entity can bring something to the project that the public sector just can't. The place where this might make actually make the most sense is with regard to rail. Right. We don't have a heck of a lot of experience in the United States of either building or running a decent rail network, unfortunately. Sure. Um, and so, you know, it may make sense to bring in organizations or, or corporations or consortia from, from other parts of the world to say, okay, we don't really know how to do this. If we were going to build up the in-house expertise and, and, and experience to do it, it would actually be more costly than if we than if we bring you in to do it. So I think if you have a circumstance like that, where the private partner is actually bringing value added, if you have a circumstance in which the state government or whichever government is ne- negotiating the contract really knows what it's doing and is really savvy and you know is is able to avoid many of the tripwires that come up in these public private partnership contracts because one thing that you often find is that in addition to just the the money moving around you also have a loss of public control over the process so you have some contracts where private roads have been built and there's been a stipulation of the contract that the state can't build or improve a free public road in the same vicinity because it would be a competitor. So you have all of these circumstances in which you can develop, not even just in, in the course of how the money moves around, but in the stipulations of the contract, you can actually do some things that are that are very constraining and negative in terms of the public's ability to plan and respond to challenges that, that come up down the line. I agree with you in general, Chuck, that for the most part, PPPs, as they've been played out in the United States, haven't it doesn't necessarily suggest that that's that that should be the wave of the future, but there may be limited circumstances in which they actually make sense if the public is is really involved and if there are strong protections to ensure that you know the public interest is protected. It seems like in a lot of these situations, what the public brings to the table more than anything else is the ability to bear the the downside risk, and mm-hmm. in a free market in a in a market based system. Generally, the person who bears the most risk also has the potential for the highest reward. Uh, mm-hmm. That doesn't seem to be the case. I, I was at a, a conference uh, put on by the Washington Post last October, and you had Ed Rendell there. And one of the things he was advocating for was more money for the TIFIA program. That's the Transportation Infrastructure Finance and Innovation Act. It's a program that essentially allows states to to borrow money with some type of public backing system. Is that a good program? Are those programs that we should be looking to expand? Or are those programs where you do have that dynamic where the public takes on a lot of risk, 
but has very limited upside in terms of the reward that they can ultimately capture. I'm not an expert on the workings of Tiffia specifically, uh, so I, I can't really comment on on the, the pros and cons of Tiffia itself. But you know, I would say you know to your comment about about market forces and how they play out in these things, you're right that we've seen particularly over time that more and more of the risk from these arrangements has been shifted onto the onto the public sector. What's really happening there is that. You know, the public is in essence providing a subsidy for for these for these private projects, and and it's hidden in a way, and that that subsidy might be you know a a public investment in the infrastructure. So many of these you know supposedly private projects have the public as a very real investment partner, where you know the public sector is you know spending a couple hundred you know hundred million here, a hundred million there to actually help build the infrastructure. But even in the place where there's not an explicit subsidy. When the public is taking on risk, the public is in essence, you know, that avoidance of risk is worth something. And when the public takes on risk, in essence, it is a subsidy supporting the private operator's ability to continue to build and profit off of that infrastructure. And so it is, it is really problematic. And it is something that, you know, unfortunately, I think what happens with, with PPP projects is that their build is being a source of new private investment in our infrastructure and where else are we going to get the money? But then the technicalities of things are such that the public is being set up for, for a lot of downside risk and, and a lot of, um, you know, problematic things happening down the road. You've convinced me that road users are not paying for the roads. <laughs> and, you know, your report does a, is a really good job of, of outlining that. Surely, though, you look at other parts of the system and they're not paying their way as well. Let, I want to talk about biking and walking first. Mm-hmm. You know, Wisconsin, there's a proposal now on the table at the legislature to charge a fee for bikes, like a registration fee, because we know those bikers are not paying their fair share. How about bikers and walkers? Where do, where do those fall in terms of the amount of money they're, they're paying and what they're getting back? Right. Well, it's it's hard to it's hard to drill down into specific numbers because we don't we don't have a lot of good numbers about investments in bike infrastructure and investments in pedestrian infrastructure. But if you walk through the logic of how this all works, it's pretty hard to come to the conclusion that bikers and walkers are doing anything other than paying their full way, and maybe even then some. You know, when you think about how do we how do we charge somebody for the use of infrastructure? Well, one way that you might do that is: do they do a lot of damage? Do they, if if they use the infrastructure, do they create a lot of damage that then somebody has to come along and fix down the line? Bicyclists and walkers certainly compared to car drivers, and definitely compared to truck drivers, the amount of damage that they do to infrastructure is minimal. I mean, you know, you're, you're biking and you're walking. Um, you know, it's it's fairly rare that you put a crack in the pavement or or you you know crack a bridge support by um, you know by taking a bike or, or or walking over a piece of infrastructure. Another way to look at it is, well, how much space do they take up? Uh, you know, and I think as you're calling back to the San Francisco example supports bicycling and walking take up very little space uh, on public roads, even in places where, you know, there's dedicated bike infrastructure. It's nowhere near the amount of space that's dedicated to roadways. And then, you know, when you think about where the money is coming from and where people are doing most of their bicycling and walking, most of it is in local areas that people are paying for that infrastructure. In the case of bicycles, you know, they're paying for that infrastructure through their property taxes. And in the case of sidewalks, you know, either they're paying for it through their property taxes or it's the responsibility of abutting, uh, of abutting uh, homeowners or business owners. So, you know, when you, when you put it all together, the amount of money that people who primarily bicycle or walk are chipping in in property taxes and other forms of general taxation that go to benefit motorists far outweighs any benefits that they're getting from state or federal programs that, that support bicycling and walking you know, in places other than local cities and towns. So when you take the full set of um, circumstances into account, it's pretty hard to conclude anything other than that bicyclists and walkers more than pay their own way. I know you don't say this in the report specifically, but one of the arguments that we've been making here at Strong Towns for, for a long time is that the highest returning investment 
a city can make in terms of dollars they spend versus dollars they get back is in biking and walking infrastructure. It's, mm-hmm. it's low cost. It's high return. Like you say, the sun and the, the weather will rot the infrastructure before the impact of the, the walker or the cyclist does. In terms of dollars in, dollars back or, or investments, are these fairly high returning types of endeavors? Well, I, I think you can probably speak to the return on investment a little better than I than I can, Chuck. I mean, I think that what what you find in terms of in terms of the net benefits or net impacts of of that kind of infrastructure is, you know, again, that you know, bicycling and walking infrastructure is relatively low impact. It's relatively low cost, and then you know, the benefits of to the extent that investing in that infrastructure gets people out of their cars and gets them moving. The, the benefits in terms of reduced pollution, in terms of reduced congestion, in terms of their health and well-being, in terms of the health and well-being of a local economy, because, you know, when people are primarily walking and biking to places where they, where they need to go, they're generally not walking and biking to Walmart. They're walking and biking to the corner store. They're walking and biking to places that are, that are owned or at least employ people who are within, within the community. So you understand the return on investment concept and you all have, have done at Strong Towns, I think have done more to, elevate that concept than anybody but you know certainly i think if 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 you look at the full picture those kinds of investments usually pay themselves off in you know in benefits you know to to a great degree one of the things that accompanies that myth that road users pay for the roads is the idea that transit users are massively subsidized can you talk a little bit about transit and kind of maybe contrast those two myths a little bit yeah, so in the report, we looked at the net public investment other than users in highways and, and in public transit. And, you know, what you find is that, you know, when you wrap together all of the, all of the general fund money that goes to support highways and all of the general fund money that goes to support public transit, that we actually spend more money on highways than we do on transit nationally. And that's money beyond, over and above what drivers are paying in, in gas taxes. It is definitely the case that transit is subsidized. There are certain folks who argue, well, you know, we need to look at it on a per mile basis or a per user basis. And, you know, lo and behold, we spend more to subsidize transit users than we do to subsidize drivers when you're talking about when you break it down that way. But, you know, but ultimately, I think the question is, you know, from from a public interest and a broader societal perspective, you know, what should we be spending money to do? What are our goals? What are the goals that we're trying to to achieve with the infrastructure investments that we make and the incentives that we provide to people to to use particular modes of travel? And, you know, when you look at the negative external costs of driving, when you look at the other tax subsidies that flow to drivers, and, you know, we've done a little bit of work bringing to light the some of the hidden tax subsidies that, that, that go to drivers, including the tax subsidy for commuter parking, which is, you know, a, a nearly $7 billion a year federal tax subsidy that encourages people to drive during rush hour. When you wrap all of those things together, it you know, investments in transit tend to make good sense, whereas investments in, you know, subsidizing ordinary driving generally generally don't. So it, it is definitely true that, that both are subsidized, but, you know, I think we would argue that, you know, one should be subsidized because it's providing general societal benefits and the other one maybe not so much. I don't want to gloss over aviation because it, it, it's not a bit player in the whole transportation funding scheme. Yet a lot of us, if we were asked to talk about transportation, would would not even list aviation as part of it. You guys mm-hmm. include a little bit about t- talk a little bit about how we pay for airlines because it goes far beyond me paying for a ticket to fly to Florida during the winter. We didn't do a lot on aviation in the report, and I think you know I'm 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 as much of a victim of the focusing on ground transportation as anybody. So um, you know I, I haven't spent a lot of time looking at it, but you know but we did look at it to some degree, and there are a great number of subsidies that flow to aviation, and you know among the biggest ones of them are 
we provide general fund subsidies for uh, FAA operations that are more than $4 billion a year. Security, you think of the of, of the amount of spending that has been done for airport security since 9-11. Um, you know, we're talking, you know, tens of billions of dollars that have been spent to make air travel more secure. And, and yes, you know, people who are riding on airplanes do pay that, you know, September 11th security fee or, um, you know, or specific fees to, to help defray those costs. But, but they haven't done anywhere near the amount needed to actually cover the costs. And then you have programs like the Essential Air Service Program, which links rural cities that otherwise aren't served by airlines and actually subsidizes travel to and from those cities. And that's another couple hundred million dollars a year. So you roll all of those things together, and, and aviation is also a significant recipient of public subsidies. So we have this huge amount of money that we spend on transportation every year that comes from all these different sources, some of them that are clear to us, some of them that aren't clear to us. I want to get into some of the recommendations that you guys made in the report, Mm -hmm. what we should do in the future to try to make good investment decisions. And, And maybe we can start with the notion of divorcing revenue from investment. Can you talk a little bit about that and why you think that's an important part of what we should be doing? One of the problems with the user pays myth, uh, so this myth that that drivers and, and, and motorists pay for roads, is that the system has been based on the assumption that drivers should pay for what they get and get what they pay for. So if I'm paying money in gas taxes, that you know it is it is my right as a motorist to have that money come directly back into things that benefit me and only me. And when you understand that those fees that are paid by motorists really barely cover even half of the cost of, uh, of um, building and maintaining roads, and when you consider some of the external impacts, even less than that, that notion that all of that money needs to flow back to the people who provided it begins to look a little bit dodgier. And what's unfortunate is that that, that pay-for-what-you-get-get-what-you-pay-for assumption, which is now no longer true, is baked into public policy in all sorts of different ways. So you look at, you know, there are more than uh, roughly three dozen states that have state constitutional prohibitions that prevent the use of state gas tax money on anything other than roads and highways. Well, you know, drivers are receiving all sorts of benefits from general taxpayers in all sorts of other ways. You know, why should it be the case that that money should only be used for the benefit of motorists? You look at federal policies, um, you know, our federal highway funding allocation policies still incorporate the vestiges of what was called the equity bonus program, which ensured that states would get back in gas tax and investments in transportation a certain share of the money that they paid in gas taxes. Well, when general taxpayers are funding everybody, everybody is getting, all of the states are now getting more money back from the highway trust fund than they've paid in in taxes. So those those stipulations, those uh, assumptions from days gone by no longer really apply, but yet they're baked into public policy and they're baked into the ways that we choose what kind of infrastructure we, we are choosing to build. So, you know, our recommendation in the report is that we begin to make infrastructure decisions based on criteria that aren't grounded in outdated assumptions of where the money comes from, but are actually focused on where society can get the biggest return on investment, the biggest bang for the buck, you know, both in terms of improving the effectiveness of the transportation system, you know, but also in other environmental and societal benefits. So you see a little bit of this happening at the federal level with um, with the TIGER program, which, you know, is a is a competitive grant program. You see some of it happening certainly on the transit side with the New Starts program. And, you know, you can have all sorts of arguments about whether the criteria that are being used in those programs are the right ones. But, but you're starting to see this movement at the federal level toward thinking about evaluating transportation investments compared to one another and increasingly compared to one another across modes. So, you know, we're not just going to compare road projects against road projects or transit projects against transit projects, but we're going to think about what the most cost-effective and efficient ways are to solve our transportation problems 
regardless of the mode. And, you know, that is the kind of thinking that is is starting to happen at the federal level. It's starting to happen in some of the more progressive states, but there's still, you know, the vast bulk of our transportation money is not allocated based on who needs it or based on, you know, what the, the most effective use of that money is, but it's based on, you know, these outdated funding formulas that don't really represent, you know, an effective use of public resources. It seems a little bit to me like you're asking us to think rationally and intelligently. And I hear you, I understand, and I agree with you. And I think actually if you and I sat down and said, let's come up with a list of a hundred projects that, you know, let's, let's look at this list of a thousand and prioritize the top a hundred. We'd probably agree. I, I think we probably would. Can we do that in a political system or the system that we have today? Is it capable of doing what you're proposing be done? Well, I think we have to find a way to do it. And one of the tragedies of the debate that we're having now about transportation policy is that the question of what infrastructure we're investing in is not even not even rising to the top of the level of discussion. You know, you think about the discussion about the federal transportation debate, you think about a lot of the state transportation debates that have happened, and it's all about, you know, oh my God, our, you know, our highways are falling apart and we need money. And, you know, in some cases our highways are falling apart and in some cases we do need money. But the discussion about where the money comes from and about how we're going to plug this hole in our transportation budget has overshadowed the discussion about where the hole comes from, about what it represents, about whether we need to be making the same kind of investments that we've made in the last 60 years. You know, we had a public debate about the interstate highway program, and we came to a result of that, of that discussion that led us to making a big societal investment in a particular way of building out our country and our communities and our economy. But we haven't had the the analog to that debate, which is now that we've finished building the interstate highway system, now that, you know, our communities have already sprawled out, now that we face, you know, economic challenges, now that we face fiscal challenges of how we're going to maintain all of this infrastructure, you know, now that we're facing increasing demands for for facilities to allow for safe biking and walking and people wanting more access to transit. Now that all of these things have changed, what is it that we want to build? What kind of a country do we want to be? And and so that's the political debate that I think gets lost in the sauce when when we focus explicitly on you know on on the question of how we fill the pot is that we're missing out on a, on a real opportunity to have a debate about where the money needs to go. And and I agree with you, Chuck. That you know it, no no observer of our political system, including debates about infrastructure and and, and transportation you know, can feel all that optimistic about our ability to make those decisions in in ways that are rational and that, you know, reflect a full, you know, a, a full and robust public debate. But I think that's the challenge before us because we're not we're not ultimately going to get to a good result any other way. Right. Let's take the ten percent at the bottom of income earners and set them aside and say, we'd have to find a, a way to subsidize them or, or, or assist them in some way. And take the 10% of the top earners who maybe in a system of fairness would, would be paying more. And just look at the 80% in the middle. Mm-hmm. It's always seemed to me like price is a good way to keep score. I look at the debate over the gas tax and there's a part of me that says, why don't we just raise the gas tax to what people are asking for? In that 80% group, what would be wrong with an approach like that? Is it just not politically viable? I don't necessarily think that there's, that there's anything necessarily wrong with that. You know, I think it is, it's, perfectly, it's perfectly fair and rational to ask people who are using a valuable piece of public infrastructure to pay the appropriate costs of that, including, you know, not only the the costs that they incur by driving over the roads, but the, the costs that they incur by creating more congestion and by releasing air pollution and by contributing to global warming, all of those things. I think the hurdles are, you know, one, you know, as you mentioned, political, uh, which is, you know, we we increasingly live in in a world in in my humble opinion where you know people are uh, people are loath to pay you know to to understand that they that they need to pay for things in order to to have them be there and you know and in part you know you had talked about 
you know, some of the ways that governments have have juggled the books and um, and incurred debt as a way to avoid that reckoning with the public. Right. Um, so, you know, I think some of the political hurdles, but then the argument that we make in the report is that you can't divorce the question of how we pay for transportation from the question of how we spend money on transportation. And so if by raising the gas tax, what we're really doing is we're pumping large amounts of more large amounts more money into a system that you know that allocates money irrationally and that winds up in the construction of long-term infrastructure that in some cases can actually cause society harm over the long term that that might not necessarily be you know the full answer to the question so I, I agree with you that you know that that increasing the gas tax or finding other ways to ensure that people are paying for the cost of their activity is, is a very important thing. But there are two sides to the equation that we that we need to wrestle with, and we, we need to do both of them at once. Well, you guys argue in the report for charging transportation costs based on a full accounting of the costs. Maybe you should go into that a little bit, too, to explain what you guys mean by a, a, a more thorough accounting. Sure. I mean, if you think about the costs that you're that as a road user, if I if I decide to go for a drive on on Interstate 93 here in here in Boston, my my behavior by doing that, my choice of doing that, is incurring a few different kinds of costs on other people. So one thing that is happening is that I'm driving on the road, and if I'm driving on the road, I'm imposing wear and tear on the road, and I'm benefiting from the fact of its existence. And so you know I should be asked to some degree to pay for maintaining that road because I'm because I'm using it and because I'm causing damage to it. Another impact that I might have is that I'm causing congestion. I'm one more car on the road that's going to delay somebody in the back of the line from getting to where they need or want to go. And so to the extent that I'm contributing to that problem, I might be asked to pay. I'm also, you know, when I park the car, I'm uh, I'm using a public space that uh, otherwise has a value. And so perhaps I'm asked to pay for that. And then, you know, through the very process of, of driving, I'm emitting pollution that is hurting people who live near the road and also contributing to, to regional air pollution and the global warming. And so ultimately, perhaps I'm asked for to, for a contribution to um, to deal with that. So there are a variety of different mechanisms, and congestion pricing is one of them, and carbon pricing is another, paying for, for parking, and certainly road user fees, whether it's a VMT fee or a gas tax or, or you name it, that you could ultimately cobble together to have the the money to have the, the the costs that drivers impose on others be better reflected in the actual price of driving. The thing I think that's important to to recognize though is that you know those of us who who talk about road pricing and other forms of pricing, I think, often fail to recognize that we've made a lot of decisions over the last 60 years that have resulted in us building a transportation system where all sorts of people are dependent on driving. And so the transition from a system where you know people are essentially using those resources for free to one in which they're paying the full cost of them is one that's going to take a while. And so I think it's just important that, that folks sort of recognize that there are a lot of folks for whom an increase of the gas tax would actually be a hardship, um, where some of these other charges would be, you know, would be a challenge. And so there's going to be there's going to be a need for time to invest in in other kinds of infrastructure and other kinds of approaches that actually reduce their dependence on driving, and then also a period where you know we're we're beginning to introduce some of these charges over time. But you know, right now. We're in a political moment where we can't even raise the gas tax, so it's going to it's going to take a while, I think, even to to bring folks to the point where there's an understanding that not only are these things ultimately good and ultimately necessary, but you know, in many ways, they do they do benefit us all. I remember a few years ago there was a an article I read, and it had a bunch of I don't want to call them think tank people. I I'm not sure exactly who they were, but they <laughs> were they were kind of laughing at or ridiculing Venezuela because. They had an official policy of subsidizing gas prices, and they said, you know, this has led to a, a dependence on people having low energy prices, and if they would adjust it back to market prices, it would work better. We seem to be, as a, as a country, and I'm talking maybe of a group of intellectual people or, or thoughtful people or policy people, we seem to be, as a country, very able to look at other parts in the world and the market failures and kind of discern them pretty clearly. 
yet not be able to do the same thing in our own. I guess maybe this is a last question. I'm, I'm kind of asking you, is, is this a human failing? Is this an American failing? Is this something that we have to keep talking about it to overcome it? How can we be so smart and yet have this, this blindness in a sense? Because, you know, your report is very good and I, I encourage people to go read it. But in many ways, it's stating, I don't want to say stating the obvious, but it's shattering a myth, which oftentimes is, you know, is stating the obvious, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, I mean, thanks for saving the really big philosophical question for last time. There, there's an anecdote in in the report, and we had done we had done a blog post after after the report, and 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 this is a, a really humorous and, and interesting website that I came across in, in the process of doing the research for this report about in Britain, where in the nineteen in the nineteen twenties there was a a road tax that was charged to drivers that then filled the pot that was used to help defray road repair costs, and that was phased out. In the 1930s, and now you know drivers in Britain pay you know basically a vehicle excise tax that goes into the general pot of money, and that's been the case now for you know seven or eight decades, and yet still you know you have drivers who who yell at bicyclists, "Hey, I pay the road tax." Well, there hasn't been a thing called the road tax in 70 years <laughs> in Britain, but yet people are still convinced that that it exists. So you know I, I don't think that Americans are uniquely are uniquely blind. I think you, Americans are generally pretty perceptive folks. Totally agree. I, I, I totally yeah. agree with you. But I do think it, it takes time for some of these mental constructs that have been built over, up over time, um, you know, and a lot of persistence and I think a lot of communication. And that's what, what you all have done so well at Strong Towns and why I admire the work that you do and, and your partners and your members is that you actually take those conversations out to the places where real people are having these real conversations, where they're faced with these difficulties. Um, and, and you talk to folks and you expose them to, um, you know, to look at the, at, the, at the issues and the challenges that they face in a different light. And, you know, I think that is the thing that ultimately is going to get us to the point where we can begin to look at some of these questions rationally is, you know, can we look at it from a different point of view? There was a report that was done by the Eno Institute for Transportation about six months to a year ago where they compared the road financing system in the U.S. with that of, you know, five or six other industrialized countries, most of them in Europe, and none of them pay for roads the way that we do. You know, they all pay for roads out of general out of the general budget and they raise, you know, they raise money from drivers through gas taxes that are usually way higher than ours. And those countries, I mean, they're not perfect by any stretch, but they don't have any problems, you know, finding, finding money to fix their roads and bridges, you know? So I think the ability to, the thing that we're really trying to do in this report is to basically let folks know that the way that you think the transportation infrastructure financing works, the way that you might have been taught for many years that it works actually isn't the case. And that if we begin to look at it afresh, if we look at it with clear eyes as to what is actually happening now, it doesn't just get us to the point where we can look at, you know, what's the solution to plug the transportation funding gap, but it actually gets us to the point where we can rethink um, our investments in infrastructure and, and when they make sense. And, you know, we hope that the report contributes to that in some small way. Where can people get a copy? Uh, they can get a copy on our website. We are at www.frontiergroup.org. Uh, you can also obtain a copy on the website of our partner organization, which is U.S. Perg Education Fund, and their website is www.usperg.org. I'll post a link on the podcast page as well. Tony Dutzik, thanks for taking the, the time to chat with me and, and go over this report, and, and thanks for the work that you're doing. When you come out with something new, uh, please send it my way. I, I love chatting with you. All right. Happy to do it, Chuck. And thanks so much for having us on. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city?
I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah. Well, there are two lines from The Princess Bride that I love. The one that everyone is very familiar with is, Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. That's the popular one. But I heard another line from the movie about five, six years ago. I was in the gym working out, running through my lines, my songs for a concert. The the TV was on, the movie was on the TV, but the sound was off because I was running my stuff. And... I went up to my hotel room to have my dinner before I went to the theater. My wife was there, and she had the movie on. It was at the end of the movie, right when Buttercup falls out the window into Andre's arms, and Robin falls into Andre's arms. The man in black, Carrie, is sitting there asking me to be the Dread Pirate Roberts. And and, and that 30-year-old Mandy and the 55, 58-year-old Mandy's watching this, watching the 30-some-year-old Mandy, say a line that I said, it's in the movie, but I didn't really hear it as that young man. And for me, it's the most potent line in the whole film. And that line is, I have been in the revenge business so long. Now that it's over, I do not know what to do with the rest of my life. And I love that line, and I love it for all of us, because the purpose of revenge, in my personal opinion, is completely worthless and pointless. And, and the purpose of existence is to embrace our fellow human being, not be revengeful, and um, turn our darkness into light. And so that's the line I love from the movie.